morning. You guys do it. Uh, my name is James. I'm the creative arts director here at Cross Point, and I'm going to be uh, preaching for you guys today. You down? All right. <laughs> we're uh, nearing the end of a series that we've been in uh, throughout the summer, making our way through the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalms that are quoted in the book of Hebrews, sort of ramping up for our fall series, which uh, not coincidentally is also in the book of Hebrews. So looking forward to that. If you've missed any of those and want to catch up, uh, those podcasts are all available on our website. might be a good way to uh, prepare for that fall series. Um, but for now, we have two more weeks left of this series, and I'm excited to be able to tackle one of these passages myself in the book of Psalms. Uh, Psalms, as I've heard it said throughout this series, in one form or another, but it bears repeating, are poems and poems intended to be sung. Um, If any of you coming out of this series are interested in a little supplementary reading, I highly recommend picking up C.S. Lewis's Reflection on the Psalms. Brian Weeks lent it to me, and it's been awesome. Uh, It's full of personal and often funny, but always stimulating insight. Uh, such as this one, from C.S. Lewis. He says, It seems to me appropriate, almost inevitable, that when the great imagination, which in the beginning, for its own delight and the delight of men and angels, and in their proper mode of beasts, had speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry, too, is a little incarnation, giving body to what had before been invisible and inaudible. In the Psalms, we see this expression of human experience that is both honest and deeply personal, as well as universal, sometimes prophetic and always pointing us to God, who took on flesh and experienced the full array of human emotions. As a kid uh, who grew up going to church, it more often seemed like church was a place to wear a mask, uh, to hide your emotions. So when I finally started reading through the Psalms, it was comforting to realize that we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weakness, as it says in Hebrews 4.15. And Psalm 40, the psalm that we'll be looking at today, is no exception, lays it all out there unabashedly. So, uh, for those of you that would like to follow along, um, feel free to flip to Psalm 40 in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and uh, feel free to take that home with you, too, if you, if you need it. Um, The psalm is composed of two parts, moving from a psalm of thanksgiving to a psalm of lament, with the messianic portion, which is quoted in Hebrews in the middle verses. And just to give you guys a heads up, I'm going to mess up the order a little bit today, starting with the two bookends and then finishing with that messianic portion. just seemed to make more sense to deconstruct it in that way. So, um, all right, we're going to get into it. You guys ready? Uh, Let me pray before we get into this verse, and and, and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, I just... uh, uh, Thank you for Psalm 40, Lord. I I thank you for uh, working on my heart as I read it, Lord, showing me what it looks like to wait on you, uh, even in preparing this sermon, uh, Lord, as you see me through it. God, would you speak through me this morning, uh, Lord, would these words uh, convict us and penetrate our hearts, Lord, and would would it bring about a new song in us, uh, sung together as as one collective body? Uh, Would you do that for us this morning, Jesus? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so starting in verse 1, first half of that verse, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's enough to, uh, to do a whole sermon on that, on that verse alone, so we're going to stop there. Um, now, there are some processes, I wanted to say, that I love, and there are some that I tolerate to get to the things that I love, to get to, it sounded like Popeye right there, to get to the things that I love, and then there are others which I find tedious and, and have no stomach for. For example, reading a book or writing a story, these are processes that I enjoy. 
Something about poring over words, both other people's and my own, seeking that magic combination of sentences that, when strung together in just the right way, have the power to convict and transform and give voice to the complex and abstract emotions that we feel, kind of like the Psalms that we'll be looking at. It's always like this little puzzle that can't be reduced to any specific mathematical formula or equation. It's always unique, always changing. And when I see it, or when I stumble upon it um, by some chance in my own right, I always find it very satisfying. Another example of this is, is composing a song. Um, this is a process that I love. I, I love to see how, uh, how what I think is going to be the way the song goes often ends up changing, especially when you're collaborating with someone. It always ends up being better than what I anticipated. I don't, however, for example, enjoy changing the strings on my guitar, but I can tolerate it because my guitar sounds better, and in some ways that helps me to compose a better-sounding song, arguably, at least when it comes time to record it. I've also never been too big on math either, but I'll endure it when it comes time to figure out how much money I make from streaming my music on Spotify. At point zero zero seven cents per play, uh, Nathan and I have made about 83 cents now, and we split that right down the middle. I mean, it goes two ways. Um, even that odd penny, which is basically worthless because no one accepts half a penny anywhere. But uh, examples of processes that I hate, home repairs of any kind. They intimidate me and emasculate me, and I'd rather call John Linville or Joe Runnels or Jason Piffle, who, by the way, made these two little communion tables up here um, in his spare time this week just for fun, probably on his birthday because he likes it so much. And this is weird because these were actually part of those two tables in the back, so he's like multiplying tables, like Jesus with the loaves of bread or something. It's this miraculous thing. Um, I would have hated that. Also, taxidermy. Um, I love the end result. Uh, I've always loved stuffed heads. I just, I know I would hate the process of doing that. And when it comes to waiting on the Lord, I'm afraid this falls into the same category of things that I, uh, I don't do very well and hence have somewhat of an aversion to. Again, I like the end result. I like the process of being transformed. Not the process. I like the result of being transformed. Uh, I just don't always like what it takes to get there. And I think it's because, at least functionally, I've always had this misconception on what exactly it means to wait on the Lord. I always kind of envision myself in this divine waiting room of sorts, like a, a doctor's office, and there's, you know, all the latest highlights, magazines that I'm pouring over, and uh, I'm in pain, but I just try and distract myself until God calls my name. Um, but I'm discovering, especially after spending time in this psalm, that this is wrong. <laughs> the kind of waiting that David writes about here is not nearly so passive. In fact, it's the complete opposite of that. The translation of patiently waiting in the original Hebrew is actually, I waited, waited. The double word serves as kind of an amplifier, such as when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's like doubly true. So as Timothy Keller puts it this way, he says, servants waiting on a great Lord are not twiddling their thumbs, but watching every expression or gesture to discern their master's will. Waiting on God, then, is to be busy in service to God and to others, all in full acceptance of his wisdom and timing. This process, for those of you who have gone through it, know that this can be excruciating, right? We look back a few psalms to number 38 and 39, if you're already in your Bibles. You can turn there if you like, but I'm just going to skim over a few of these verses, and you see what it's like to wait on the Lord. Psalm 38 says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. 
I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. Another way of saying that. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It's a cheery one, right? Psalm 39. My heart became hot within me and I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? But David is about to answer his own question in Psalm 40, as we shall see. Going back to that verse 1, the second half of that says, He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. First of all, he inclines to us. The God of all creation, the King of heaven and earth, takes notice of us, stooping down from his throne above, and enters into our messes. That he hears our cries. He doesn't stand idly by, but he responds. He acts. And he comes to our rescue. David writes about this in verse 2. Here he relates this dilemma in contrasting imagery. Right? We have the solid versus the precarious, the pit of destruction and the miry bog versus the rock who makes our steps secure. Uh, this is what I think of when, uh, when I hear that imagery. Go ahead and uh, dim the lights, Bobby. Let's 
So there you go. Hope that, uh, hope that helps. I'll leave that slide up there for you guys for a while. We go that. It's a little bit of my childhood there. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, that was uh, Jim Henson's The Labyrinth. And we see Sarah, played by Jennifer Connelly, dangling dangerously above the bog of eternal stench, which Hoggle, the little dwarf guy, informs us earlier that if you step even one toe into the bog, you will smell bad for the rest of your life. And so, um, so just when all seems lost, Ludo, the beast man, uh, starts to call out and summon the rocks from beneath, and, uh, and then the rest of them cross safely across the bog. I'll never look at that scene the same way again in spite of Psalm 40. But, uh, but there's something else about this imagery uh, that as I was reading this came to mind and was talking to my uh, wife about the passage, which often proves more helpful than uh, even the most thorough commentaries. There's something deceptively stable about the bog, right? Or about sand or similar types of, of viscous surfaces. I mean, no one would think of walking on water, right? Like the, the story about Jesus, he walks on, and then Peter does for a little bit. Um, but, but for the sake of my argument, mostly you wouldn't think of, of water as being a stable surface, right? As a rule, we don't walk on water. Um, we can all agree on that, right? But maybe you think, I could walk on that bog for a little bit. It seems stable enough. If you ever walk across a lawn on a sunny day, but after a period of rain, the grass appears to be solid, but then you find yourself sinking and slipping on a wet and muddy patch. That's always a little disconcerting, right? You, you feel cheated. You say, I trusted you, grass, and now uh, you got me into this. Maybe you don't say it. Maybe you think it. But, uh, but all the same, it's true. And the same with sand, right? Especially when it's dry. Definitely seems like I could walk across that, maybe even perhaps build something on that, but it doesn't hold up. Sand is not a great surface for building things on. It's too susceptible to change. It makes me think of the old hymn, which is a reference to Matthew 7, 24 through 27. It says, on, cross, on, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I always seem to find this out the hard way. I start putting my trust in things other than Jesus. I say things like, let me check my bank account one more time. Maybe there's more money there than the last time I checked. Or let me just crunch those numbers one more time. Or I'm going to veg out a while and binge watch this show. Or I'm going to check in the fridge one more time because I'm sure there's something there that wasn't there before that'll satisfy me now. And there never is. And it always begins rather innocently, right, under the guise of something that appears good. What seems like a passive waiting for God becomes an active disobedience. And the things that are intended to occupy my time become, in a sense, functional saviors. I mean, that's the nature of sin, right? And Satan and the father of lies. I'm just being responsible with my money, you might say, to dismiss it. Or I'm just relaxing. There's nothing wrong with that. But these things tend to take on a more sinister tone, especially when the storm hits, especially when they start to fail. And we become dissatisfied, and we become confused, and full of despair. And the harder we try to get out, the deeper we sink into the sand or the mire, which we discover was really just masking the pit of destruction all along. By the way, I'm not trying to suggest I know anyone's situation, or saying, like, you can't watch TV or something like that. I only know my tendencies and how they lead me astray. I'm in no way attempting to create some exhaustive list of rules nor do I want to, and you won't find that in God's Word either. But what you will find in Scripture is the promise of a relationship, that when we seek God, we will find Him. And as we wait on the Lord, 
He will set our feet on solid ground, like Ludo from the labyrinth clip we just watched. And out of this often painful and trying process, he will give us a new song to sing. For David, waiting on the Lord has transformed him. It makes me think of Romans 2, uh, 12, 1 through 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In these verses, David is recalling a time that leaning and trusting in the Lord changed him from the inside out and brought about this freshness and a vibrancy to his worship that, as we see here, is contagious. Going into verse 3, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. It's really uh, an amazing verse, isn't it? I'm going to read it again because it blows my mind. It says, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And because David is boasting loudly in his Lord and proclaiming of his great works and singing this new song, others are coming to know and understand his God. He elaborates on this in verse 4 and 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Here is David's new song, which is not just some perfunctory obligation, but a personal testimony sung with passion and with the heaviness that comes from experience. He's saying, do you know our great God? Let me tell you about what he's done for me. Um found myself in the midst of, of one of these periods, uh, as I often do, off and on, uh, of trial and of waiting on the Lord, uh, and ultimately uh, how that brought forth uh, this new song in my life, so I was going to share that. Um, uh, it'll be about two years this September since my father passed away, and uh, for those of you who lost someone dear to you, you know that when you're going through it, um, you can't ever imagine not being in it. Or, or even imagine how you ever get out of it. At least that was the case for me. I'm not sure how to describe it. It's like the feeling that everything is the same, and yet somehow everything is entirely different. Because you have your routine, and everyone else has a routine, and the world doesn't seem to skip a beat as you go along. And you carry on performing tasks as you normally would, right? Getting ready and going to work, and, and taking out the trash, and tucking your kids into bed, and all those things that you do every day. But you're doing it all through these lenses of pain, which enable you to see the great tear in the fabric of existence, the sort of alternate reality where death happens, which of course it does, that is reality, but for most of us we don't come into contact it very often, so it seems strange. My dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given about a year to live, so this was a pro prolonged period of waiting on the Lord for me. I knew I would not be able to get through it without him. And yet there were no answers for this devastation apart from Jesus. And I remember sometime during that process uh, of seeking him that the Holy Spirit led me to the verses in Hebrew chapter 2. Um, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. I'm just going to read those now. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject 
to slavery all their lives. And so he gave me that verse, and, uh, and I was somehow able to sit across from my dad a couple months before he passed away, and through a great deal of fear and trepidation, because our conversations weren't usually of this nature, uh, I read this verse to him, and, uh, and I, asked him, I asked him where he was with that. And was he living in fear of death? And if so, he didn't need to be because Jesus had conquered it. And he told me that he wasn't, that he had made his peace with Christ, as he put it, and then he was ready to meet him. It was one of the best conversations I ever had with my dad. When he did pass away, we had a funeral at a church in Willard, Missouri, which probably won't be on your radar anytime soon, but uh, for me it was of particular significance because it was the church where I decided 20 years previous to, to be a follower of Christ at a vacation Bible school <laughs> of all places. And it was that same Jesus who stood with me there on that day and put a song on my lips and helped me to declare with boldness that I had never experienced before and standing in front of this mixed congregation of people saved and unsaved some family members that I barely saw and some strangers and this peculiar dynamic of all these different people that I was able to declare the gospel of our great sin and death-conquering hero, Jesus Christ. And I don't know if anyone was saved uh, or came to know Jesus or maybe it just rattled the world a little bit to think about that. Um, I pray they were because that would be a cool thing to 20 years later come back there and... Uh, and preach the Savior that I knew, and for people to come and know him. But regardless, that is the transformative power of the gospel in my life, that in waiting on the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, we are changed, and that through our testimony, others come to know and follow Jesus. In Psalm 40, I'm confronted with the importance of what we do here on a Sunday morning, that as we gather, we offer our redemption songs to our Redeemer, songs that are both unique and experiential, but also universal. And it's this kind of great... Uh, Pardon my 80s references this morning, but I, I imagine this like uh, this awesome Care Bear stare just coming forth from the congregations, that colors shooting out of our bellies, this beautiful and powerful and life-changing thing, and maybe some of your Care Bear cousins with your calls. And, and it's all meant to be experienced, not in isolation, but collectively as one body. And I'm saying this uh, knowing that I'm a staunch introvert, someone whose idea of, of a great time is locking themselves away in a room with a book, like that boy from Never Ending Story, and the smaller and the darker the room, the better, like I'm back in the womb or something. Thanks, Mom. But looking at Psalm 95, which Jason preached on last week, if you weren't here, go and listen to that, by the way, because it makes a really compelling argument for why we gather together and the importance of corporate worship, um, both individually and for the church at large. And now Psalm 40, looking at verses 9 and 10, it is hard to push back on this call to worship as the church gathered. By the way, I haven't forgotten about verses 6 through 8. I promise we're going to come back to those. But for the time being, it kind of flows more into this. Looking at verses 9 and 10, David writes, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. We sing together these songs of salvation because it glorifies God and because we want others to know how awesome he is. This wraps up the Thanksgiving portion of Psalm 40. Now on to the lament section and then we'll come back around to verses 6 through 8 and hopefully tie it all together. The majority of the Psalms 
uh, for information are written in this reverse order where it starts out with a lament and then moves into this psalm of thanksgiving, but this one is sort of cyclical in nature, and so it starts off sort of the opposite way. Begins with the psalmist, King David, remembering how God saved him in the past, and then moves into this present tense struggle, and then ultimately ends with our future hope. I'm just going to kind of blaze through uh, these next verses uh, leading up to the end and starting in verse 11, reading through these. It says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! I, I always have trouble reading this verse. I'll let the laughing part. How do you say it? Sort of picture Nelson from The Simpsons. Basically, aha, aha, but may all of you, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So now we seem to come back at this point in the passage to that miry bog with David. Only this time he's drowning. He says he is blinded by his sin. Early in the passage he writes about God's great works. Too many to number, he says, but the evils here now are beyond number. His iniquity is more than the hairs on his head. Moreover, his enemies seek to kill him. Hard to say which came first. Is it the internal sin struggle that has led to this external dilemma, or is it the other way around? They often feed on each other. But one thing is clear, David is being squeezed, and what is coming out is not the sweet aroma of Christ, but the bog of eternal stench that we saw earlier. That sin nature rearing its ugly head, as it often does. David waited on the Lord in the past, and God delivered him, and now he must wait patiently again. This is the part about my own process of sanctification that I'm never quite prepared for. It always seems to to sort of catch me off guard. No matter how many times God has proven himself faithful, my default is not to offer my body as a living sacrifice, but to look for something else for an easier fix. I think, I think this is because I want following Christ to be more of an event. I did it, and I made that decision, and now I'm moving on. But it's not like that. It's an ongoing cycle that will continue until the day I die. And thankfully, our God is not so forgetful. Our God is faithful, our God is trustworthy, and David is banking on his track record and also looking forward to his future hope in Jesus Christ. Now into verses 6 through 8, and hopefully after that this will be shown kind of in a new light. It says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Here's the answer to, to our sin problem. The fulfillment of the law 
in Christ. Here we see the Old Testament processes of atonement, which Hebrews 10 goes on to tell is only temporary. And I'm just going to read Hebrews 10, starting at verse 4, because I feel like uh, that's a far better commentary uh, on what's happening in Psalm 40 than I could ever say. So, um, looking at verse 4, Hebrews 10, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here we have those verses again, only this time attributed to Jesus instead of David, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is the good news, right? That irrespective of where we find ourselves in that miry bog, overwhelmed by sin and doubt, that Jesus wins every time. He conquers sin and death and claims us as his own. I like what Donald Williams says in his commentary. He writes, Salvation is not only being saved from something, it is also being saved for something. Christ rescues us from sin, and he also rescues us for himself. Every week during this series, we've been asking the question, what is our song to sing as the church? And a couple things come to mind in light of this passage. The first is this. That response to, to what it means to wait on God. I think, I think we can sing, wait patiently on the Lord, trusting solely in Him, for He is our rock and our deliverer. And secondly, and this pertains to verses 6 through 8, and I'm quoting Tim Keller here because I think he says it better. It says, let yourself be moved by what He did for you until your duty becomes joy. In the moment we're going to take communion We take the bread representing his broken body and dip it in the cup representing his blood spilled for us on the cross. But take this time beforehand as we sing together with our voices raised to reflect on the finished work of Christ on the cross who with a single offering has perfected all time those who are being sanctified.